Let's go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can just turn there. If you need one, though, go ahead and, and grab one of those from the chairs there in front of you, around you, page 119, or if the Bible has a flame on it, page 152. Now, we are, the, the last few sermons, this one, the next couple, we're just taking large chunks at this point. There, chapter 6, we kind of slowed down and dug in a lot deeper. Some of this, we're going to start to take larger chunks, whole chapters at a time. Um, there's going to be some summary involved. So I want to remind you that we do have the reading plan that's out there uh, for you to be able to keep up each week. If you follow the reading plan, track A gets you reading whatever we're covering that week, right? So if you had it this week, you'd have been reading chapter 9 this week, so you've already looked at it. Track B on that reading plan brings other verses, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, that correspond to some of the stuff we're looking at in this chapter. So anything that it references, Old, Old Testament stories it references, or New Testament places where it's quoted, those are in track B, and that's to help you get a better feel for how does Deuteronomy impact the rest of the scriptures? How did the New Testament authors pull on Deuteronomy and lean on Deuteronomy? How did they understand it? What is Moses talking about when he references some of the places that we're going to talk about this morning? That's how that reading plan is designed. So you've got that out there. There's also electronic copies on Facebook as well, and we've included every week in my email that I send out. Um, at the bottom of that email, I've been keeping that reading plan there, so you should be able to see that. If you're not getting those emails, let us know so we can make sure to get you at it. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, and here's where we're going this morning. As we, uh, we dig in, the danger of the people of God forgetting God is misplaced glory. I changed the word from the email. In the email, I said misappropriated. It still works. I just went with misplaced for this morning. But in Deuteronomy, we've talked a lot. We've seen a lot of warnings and cautions. Don't forget God. Don't forget God. Remember God when. And this morning is no different. You know, um, 70, 80%, I'm making up statistics because you know that's how statistics work. 70 or 80% of pastoring is reminding you of what you already know. It's not teaching you new things, helping you to understand. There certainly is that. But 70 to 80, the large chunk of pastoring is reminding you of what you already know. You see this in, in Moses as he's giving sermons. He has repeated himself over and over again, nine chapters now as we have it, where he's constantly telling them, you need to obey when you get in the land. You need to remember what God has done. Don't forget. He's just reminding them time and time again because 70, 80, whatever that percentage is, a large chunk of, of pastoring is just reminding people of what you know. And so, you know, if you, if you come and you're just like, I want to learn something new, you know, maybe you learn something new. If you're open and humble, you'll probably learn something new, right? But, but if you're always just looking for, I want something new, I want my ears to be, to be kind of just itched in a way where I learn something new, you might forget something that God's trying to remind you of. And he might not be letting you be open to something that's, that's new because you're not living based on what you already know. Right? And so we, 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 we don't want to gloss over things where we go, oh, I get this already. I get this. Because God, God, what do you have in this for me today? Is there any place where I'm forgetting would be a prayer I'd be praying this morning? God, is there, is there anything that where I'm not remembering you, where I'm forgetting you? Is there, or as we unpack this, is there any place where I'm, I'm misplacing glory? Right? And so that's where we're going. The danger of the people of God forgetting God is misplaced glory. And two places that we're going to see Moses highlight this morning where God's glory gets misplaced, meaning it, puts, it gets placed on something or someone else, where God's glory, that which rightly and appropriately solely belongs to him, 
gets placed on someone or something else. There's two places he's going to highlight. The first one is this, misplaced glory in self-righteousness. Misplaced glory in self-righteousness. So look with me, verse 1. Verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Remember, Moses is preaching. This is sermon number two out of seven that we find in this book. Sermon number two out of seven. The first and second ones are really long, and then the next ones follow. They're quite short. Right? But Moses is speaking to this new generation who has been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Their parents and grandparents have been wiped out because of disobedience and disbelief. So now they're standing here on the cusp in the same place where they're about to cross over into the land that God has promised. And Moses is now instructing them, here's the covenant. Here's the covenant that God has made with you and your, your parents and your, your, your generations before you, but he's now reaffirming this covenant to you and you're recommitting yourself to it. Before you go into the land, you've got to have a right understanding of who God is and what he's expecting of you as you go into the land. So he's, he's given all this before they go in. So as we get to this point, he says, Hero Israel, that phrase right there, I highlighted just because I wanted to point you back to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and the Shema. Remember, we spent a lot of time on that. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, right? And we get, it's called the Shema because the word behind here, the Hebrew word is Shema. And we've talked about this before. The word Shema or hear doesn't mean just take something audibly in. Don't just get content in. It, it comes in and then it shapes the way you live your life. You act on what you hear, you obey, right? So when he calls them to hear, he's not just saying, listen up, listen up, all eyes on me. Quiet signs up, everybody listen. He's not just going there. He wants them to listen because he expects them to obey. He expects them to act based on what he is saying. So he says, you're going to cross over today. You're going to cross over this Jordan River today, and you're going to start to dispossess the nations. He reminds them they're greater and mightier than you. He's going he's to hammer this home today. You're going to go against cities that are great and fortified all the way up to heaven. And so Jericho, for instance, the first, first one they're going to tackle, and you get that in the book of Joshua, was a city that was so tall built there was no other like it. And it, it, it was made of, it was like legends uh, are told about it. Verse 2, he, said, he reminds them, there's a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim. Now we have talked about them time and time again, but anytime it comes up in the text, I'm going to tell you more about them. We have learned that the Anakim... That's plural just for many people. When you see I am on the end of a Hebrew word, it's just plural. So the Anakim are the sons of a man named Anak. And we are told that Anak was related to the Nephilim. They were giants. They were part of this corruption in the line, that this new breed, this, this hybrid that happened between when angels transgressed their boundaries and they had relationship with human women and from them came Nephilim. 
Okay? They're called Nephilim, they're called Anakim, they're called Zephaim, they're called Rephaim. You see all of these different words, and we dug into that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But these are the people that when I just spit the rest of my cough drop on the floor. That's all right, it was only a small, in case, in case you saw something fly out of my mouth. All right, so I got most of it though, so we're good. So, so what he's reminding them of is when the spies went into the land, you read about this in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, when the spies went into the land, 10 of the 12 came back and said, there's Nephilim in the land. The sons of Anak are there. They saw giants. And because of that, they failed to believe God and trust him and go into the land. They brought back a negative report, which is then what ended up leading the people in the desert for 40 years. One year for every day that the spies spent in the land. Moses is reminding him, those people haven't gone anywhere over these 40 years. They're still there, right? So the, the, the Anakim are there, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Now, one other thing, just as just interesting tidbit. Some of you have asked me this over the course of the weeks. How do the Nephilim or the Anakim fit into history? Um, they are your Greek mythology. This is... Hercules, this is Hermes, this is Thor, right? These, these are these other cultures' way of explaining what happened at Mount Hermon in Genesis 6. Now, I know that because we have writings from ancient Babylon, and it talks about a group of people called the Anunnaki. Anunnaki seems very close to Anakim, right? But the Anunnaki in the Babylonian literature are their heroes that were half God, half human. Thor, Hercules, Hermes. Every culture has to wrestle with and grapple with what God is doing in creation and in history, but they don't always give God credit, right? But they always have an explanation, and so their explanation of what happened at Mount Hermon, which we read about in Genesis 6, and, and what resulted of it is the Nephilim, their explanation is these are heroes. The gods came down and they produced for us heroes who fight for us. And these, these Nephilim were known warriors, mighty warriors. And so that's how they fit into um, these other cultures. The same thing happens with the flood. Right? This, this worldwide flood takes place. Everybody experiences it, but how do you explain it? Well, if you di disregard God, then your explanation must disregard God. And so that's where you come up with Babylonian literature. And we have one well-known and well-recognized account of a Babylonian understanding of the flood. It's found in a document called the Enuma Elish. We have, I don't make this stuff up. We have this kind of stuff that helps us understand how did other people explain and understand it. And so um, the Gilgamesh epic and the Enuma Elish, these are Babylonian writings that help us understand how did other civilizations understand what God did. That's how this fits into history. This is not fantasy. This, this is not just mythology. This is real life stuff that took place and people have to wrestle with how do I explain that? And if you disregard God, then your explanation is going to disregard God. Okay? These are the people that are in the land. Moses is reminding them of that. Verse three, I'm going to camp here for just a moment because it sets the tone for the rest of this chapter. So when you go in the land, when you start to dispossess, you're, you're driving the people out. You're seeing them leave before you and God is giving you the things that are there. Know, therefore. 
Know, therefore, not just intellectually, but experientially. You need to know this, that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is Yahweh, your God. Amen. Right? So when you go in and you start to see all these people being driven out and you're overcoming these cities that are great and fortified and these people that are greater and mightier than you, when you start to see them run and you're experiencing victory over them, you need to know, we might put in there, remember, you need to know, remember this, that the one who's going before you as a consuming fire the one who is going before you and he's fighting your battles, the one who is driving these people out and he's consuming all that oppose you, you need to know who he is because you need to give appropriate glory and credit to who he is. He is Yahweh, your God. He's not any other God that you've known or experienced in Egypt or that you're going to know and experience in the land. This is the one who has delivered you from Egypt, who overcame every one of the Egyptian gods. Each plague in Egypt in the count of Exodus is a judgment on one of the Egyptians' gods, ultimately ending with Pharaoh, who was believed to be a god when he took the son, the, the firstborn son. This is Yahweh, your God, who has overcome every opposition to you, who has redeemed you out of slavery, brought you into the wilderness, provided for you in the wilderness, the one who has gone before you and helped you to overcome that which is greater and mightier than you. Yahweh, your God, he's the one who's going before you in the land. So when you start to see people driven out, when you start to experience victory over things that you should not experience victory over, humanly speaking, you need to know where the glory goes. That's where he starts. You need to know it's Yahweh, your God. He's going to destroy and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out. It's because Yahweh, their God, is going to destroy them and subdue them that they're going to drive them out. Make no mistake. It has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with how mighty, how strong, or how numerous they are. It's because Yahweh, your God, he's going before you. Amen. All right? That's important. Because, you know, when we experience God's provision, when we experience God's blessing in the moment, we are very quick oftentimes to acknowledge God. I, I was so desperate. I could not have experienced this. I could not have, have, have acquired this. There's no way I could have been here were it not for you. But the further we get away from that moment and the further we go from experiencing his power and his presence in our life, the easier it is for us to start giving glory to someone or something else because we so easily forget what God has done. So easily forget. And then when we get to, to, to be around other people who don't worship the same God or they, they worship God in a different way, a non-biblical way, right? And we start to see their life looks good. They have the things that I want, the things that I desire. We start to look at their lives and we ask questions. Well, what are they doing? What do they believe? What do they say? How do they live their lives? And then we start to try to take piece of that saying, well, it works for them. Therefore, I'm going to use it in my life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to incorporate that into my understanding of things. We call that syncretism, taking the, the, the substance of true religion, what God has revealed about who he is and, and how he wants his people to live, and then taking false religion and trying to bring pieces of that in. And you say to me, we don't do that today. And I say to you, new age has creeped in to Christianity like nobody's business. And we are saying and doing and believing things that New Age, Eastern religions have taught for centuries. And we're saying, this is how God works. Karma, karma is not biblical. 
Karma is not biblical. Karma assumes no God but a divine universe. Karma assumes that in the universe, even though the universe is not personal, it doesn't really know you, the universe knows what you do and how you treat people and how you live your life. And if you live a certain way, the universe is going to return it in kind. It's like a tit for tat type of thing, um, an eye for an eye. So if I therefore do good things or think good thoughts, the universe will give good things to me. That's called the law of attraction in New Age thought. That seeped into Christianity way back in 2006 and before that, but it came in with the book called The Secret. Right, and it got popularized. We've incorporated that kind of stuff in where we think that, and I'm not talking like just positive thinking, I'm talking about empty positivity. Right? Positive thinking where the Lord says, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. That's good. There's substance there. Or Philippians chapter four where he says, whatever's good and lovely and pure and right, think upon these things. That's good. That's got substance to it. Empty positivity is I'm trusting the universe to give me something because I've thought a certain way or I've lived a certain way. We live that way. We live that way, but that's not how God has revealed himself. And it, and it can't be compatible with God. That's one example. But we do this today. We do this today. And so we get around people and we say, I want to do what works. That person's rich. That person's wealthy. How did they do that? Well, well I'm going to start doing what they did. I'm not saying strategies aren't helpful, but I'm saying you start to change the way of thinking because what happens if you find out that that person believes all kinds of things that are opposed to God, does all kinds of things that are opposed to God, and you start restructuring your life because it worked. Pragmatism does not go with faith. What works does not always go with faith, but sometimes we substitute pragmatism for faith. We say, well, this church is doing well in this. Oh, Lord, help me. We say this church is doing well in this area and they're really successful according to my standards or everybody else's standards, so we need to do what works. And all the while, God's saying, I don't want you to be about that kind of stuff. Their reward is there. That's it. You see all those people? Their reward is there. But God may be calling the church. I say may because I'm just trying not to presume. I firmly believe he is because he had it start out this way. He's calling the church to make disciples who make disciples. He's calling the church to multiply, not just build large buildings to amass lots of people so that they gather there. He's calling people to come and know Christ that then they might make Christ known. And you can't do that if you're just amassing yourself in large numbers every week being entertained. Lord, help me. All right. All right. I got to move on from preaching that because I'm about to get in trouble. Four, do not say in your heart, look with me at verse four. Do not say in your heart after the Lord, here's the first thing, self-righteousness. So it's the Lord who's going to go before you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. One of the places we are tempted and oftentimes succeed in, and I don't use that positively, we succeed in misplacing the glory of God is right here on ourselves. Self-righteousness. When God has paved the way, when God has provided, when God has blessed, and none of what we have and none of what we have accomplished could have been done apart from God, we give him credit maybe in the moment, but the longer we get away, we say, no, it wasn't really that bad. I wasn't that desperate. It wasn't as, as severe as I thought. 
I did this. I, I just had a change of perspective. My attitude changed. My mindset changed. I started speaking things into my life that just changed the direction of my life. Do you see what, do you see what I'm talking about? This comes into our, our way of thinking and we start to put it all on ourselves. And Moses, Moses, I just, I love Moses as a pastor. Um, Moses is not going to, for the goal of making people feel good. He's not going for the goal of, of encouraging people to feel better about themselves. He wants them to know the Lord and to live before him rightly. And so he says, so when you get in there, don't say it's because of my righteousness. It's, it's because we're so good. It's because we've been, doing our, we've been following the law and perfect obedience that God has done this. Don't, don't get in there and say it's because of what, what I have done or who I am. Let me put it in today's church. It's not because you go to church every Sunday or you tithe or you give. It's not because you wake up and you pray every morning or you give quiet times. All of that stuff should be, be happening in your life and it's good and stuff, but it's not because of those things. None of that builds righteousness in your life. It grows you. It helps you to know the Lord. But the righteousness that you and I have does not belong to us. It's given to us. And it belongs to another. It belongs to Christ. He who knew no sin, he made to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We get Jesus' righteousness. He says, don't, don't think it's your own. In fact, he says, don't think it's your own righteousness. In fact, it's simply because these people I'm driving out, they're so wicked. That's why I'm driving out. It has nothing to do with you. It's about them and their sinfulness. That's why I'm driving them out. As if they had a place to stand, Moses is saying, just in case you think it's about you, it's not. These people are so wicked, God was going to do it anyway. You're just being able to benefit from the blessing of God's goodness. Right? Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. So the first place we misplace glory is we put it on ourselves. And then he goes on and he says at the end here in verse, in verse 5, the end of verse 5, and he's doing this so that he shows himself faithful, that he might confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers. God is doing what he said he was going to do right. because God does what he says he's going to yeah. do. And so bringing these people in the land is, is God being faithful to bring about his promise to Abram. He's bringing about his promise that he made Abram, that got passed to Isaac, that got passed to Jacob. That's why God is doing this. If you think it's about you, he says, you're severely misled. He keep going, and we look at verse 6. So he says, know therefore, verse 6, look with me. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving, he's just driving this home, he's not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. See, this is the kind of pastor that Moses is. He's telling them straightforward, you're stubborn. Now, if you, nope, nope, seven, 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 remember, I got to keep going, seven, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the world. He's now going to remind them of how stubborn they are. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Moses says, from the day I knew you. Remember, Moses grew up as a, as, a, as a royal member of the family in Egypt. Remember, he was adopted in by Pharaoh's daughter, so, so he was a prince of Egypt. I was trying not to say that phrase because I didn't want you to go to the movie, but he was a prince of Egypt, right? He grew up that way. And when he was 40 years old is when he, he knew about his, his people, the Hebrews, but that's when he got started to interact with them, right? And then he gets driven into the desert for another 40 years. He comes back at 80 and he's telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and he's leading the people out of Egypt and he's an 80-year-old man. And he says, from the day I knew you, you've been stubborn. 
From the day I knew you, you've been. Now he's already been with them 40 years in the wilderness. So now he's close to 120, right? He's saying from the day I knew you, from the day you came out, you have rebelled against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. That's a problem. You are a stubborn people, he says. Don't think it's about your righteousness because you're stubborn. It has nothing to do with you. You've been rebelling from day one so much so that the Lord was so angry with you, he was ready to destroy you. I've got to skip a few verses now because those next verses, he's just going to get into a little more detail about, about the, the path they've taken, right? So you can read through that if you haven't already. Jump with me to verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, verse 12. I've got to get the right chapter. Here we go. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a metal image. So 9 through 11, Moses is just describing he was on the mountain. He went up to the mountain for 40 days. Are you noticing 40, by the way? Moses' life have broken up into 40 years. They get wandering in the desert for 40 years. The spies had gone in the land for 40 days. Moses goes up to the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights. You go back to the flood, 40 days, 40 nights. You go into the temptation of Jesus. He's in the desert for 40 days. Significant, and it's all meant to tie together. But he, said, he, he says in 9 through 11 that he was up on the mountain, but God tells him while he's up on the mountain, you need to go down. Your people are acting corruptly. And he tells them they've made an image. So Moses comes down, all right? He comes down, and we're going to get into what he sees there. But the first thing that we see, misplaced glory, is in self-righteousness. It's put on me. I take what belongs to God. I take credit what God alone has done. I don't give God credit. I misplace his glory, and I put it on myself, my own self-righteousness. That's one thing we've got to be cautious of. The second one is this, misplaced glory in idolatry. Idolatry. And that's where he's going to start to unpack this metal image. So you remember the story, this metal image, where Moses is on the mountain, and Aaron, his brother, is down there, and he's serving as their priest, and the people come to Aaron, and they say, make for us an image of our God so that we might see and worship it. Now, they came out of a place in, in, in Egypt where they were used to seeing all kinds of God and images to represent them. But remember, God has already told them at, at, at um, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb where they were. Remember Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, same mountain. Deuteronomy just calls it Horeb, right? Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. They were there and God revealed his covenant to them, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. One of them is, you shall have no other gods before me, and then you shall make no images. And he reminds them, you didn't see an image of God. No images. But what do they do now? Moses, their mediator, their, their, their leader, is up on a mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. You see the thunder and the lightning on the top of the mountain where your leader is. You have no clue if he's coming back down. You've seen the power of this God consume other people. In fact, you've seen his power consume some of your people. And you're wondering, maybe we're now without a leader. Aaron, make for us something that we can worship. Because that's our sinfulness in us. That's our tendency is if I can't see it, I, 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 I lack the faith and I need to see something. I need to be able to put my hands on it so that I can worship it. That's our, our problem. That's what leads to idolatry. If I can't see it, it must not be real. Uh-huh. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the yes. conviction of things not yet seen. Faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for. This is what God has said he is going to do. This is what's mine. This is coming. This is, this is what he has promised. So faith is, I am assured that that's going to happen. I hope for it. Not that I wish that my team wins, right? But I, I'm hoping in what God has said. I'm placing my trust in what he said he's going to do and how he's going to do it and when he's going to do it. I am a, I am, I'm trusting that. So hope uh, uh, for assurance of the things hoped for, I'm sure that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And then the next part is, it's the conviction of things not yet seen. Amen. But I want to see it. And yet God has said this, and God has said he's going to do this, or he's going to show up here. And he said, don't worship other idols. But it's hard for me to understand worshiping a God that I can't see visibly, that I can't touch physically. But faith is the conviction, the deep abiding faith, belief. Faith is the conviction of things not yet seen, of what I can't see. God says, I'm here. God says, I'm present. God says, I am your God. I am. I'm the ever-present God, Yahweh. I'm not the God of I was or I will be. I am. But sometimes I wonder, where is I am? Sometimes I wonder, where is God? And it's in those moments that I'm tempted to abandon God, misplace his glory, and create something that I can grasp onto. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm not going to make a metal, metal cow. No, but you're going to make something that you're going to let then direct your life. You're going to place or elevate something that's created that is not from God, and you're going to let that start to change the way you think, the way you spend your money and your time, and your affection is going to go towards that, and you have for yourselves now an idol. Moses, verse 13. <clears throat> he says, Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. This is God speaking. But God only says nice and loving things. And behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned... And came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and I beheld, you had sinned against the Lord your God, you had made yourselves a golden calf, you had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. I'm going to stop there for a moment. The Lord said to me, I've seen these people, they're stubborn. God knows the heart. He knows what they're doing. You know, we sing, mm. Um, and Christmas time, we sing a song about somebody who knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you are awake. And we, uh, we use it as parents um, to manipulate behavior. But the one who truly does know when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake, and he, he knows your heart. I'm not going to say he knows if you've been bad or good. He does, but he knows your heart. Because Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit, right? Where can I go? I can go to the deepest depths, the highest heights, and there, there you are, right? And, and we, we teach, we teach our, our kids to, to fear the wrong person, okay? We teach our kids to fear and place their fear in the wrong place. And we teach them it's about behavior modification, and God's not interested in behavior modification. He's interested in heart transformation yeah. that then leads to behavior hey, changes. Man. He sees what's going on, and he says they're stubborn. So Moses goes down. He sees it for himself. He throws the tablets down out of his hand, and he breaks them. I looked and beheld you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. 
You had turned aside quickly from the way of the Lord that he had commanded you. You took hold of, so I took hold of the two tablets, threw them uh, out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. eyes. The covenant had been broken. Uh He goes on, verse 18. Look at this, verse 18. Then I lay prostrate, that's flat on my face. I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you, but the Lord listened to me that time also. Moses was fearful for the people because God's right and just response towards sin is his wrath. If God does not respond justly towards sin in wrath, but instead overlooks it, sweeps it under the rug, excuses it, then he is not a just God. He's also then not a loving God, and his love means absolutely nothing if he didn't spare you from his wrath. Right? And so Moses is fearful. So he goes and he intercedes for the people, 40 days, 40 nights, fasting and praying on behalf of the people because he's concerned God's going to wipe you out because of your sin, because he understood God takes sin seriously. He does not look at sin lightly and just say, you're just learning You're just growing. God has already instructed them in this. Once God instructs you in this, you are responsible for that knowledge, which is why it is so dangerous for us to amass and amass and amass biblical knowledge with no heart change. You are responsible. I am responsible for every bit of truth that God makes known to me. And if I don't live based on that truth, I am responsible. I am in rebellion against him. Oh, well, I didn't know. Well, that's different. That's a sin of ignorance. And so now you, you're still guilty of the sin, but you now come into a knowledge and you can move forward and, and, and repent of that. But if you know already and you sin, that's a transgression. That's a rebellion. That's I knew it and I did it anyway. That's your kid knows what you've instructed them. They stare you dead straight in the eye, challenging you. It's like the the Western, dum, 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 dum. And then they do it. Transgression. They knew it, right? There's a difference between, I didn't know God, and now you know, so now you set your path straight and you walk on the path of life. Moses is interceding because these people have transgressed. They have rebelled against God. He's afraid that God is going to wipe them out, but he says, But the Lord listened to me this time. God listened to their faithful mediator, the one who went to intercede and advocate on their behalf. 20, and the Lord was so angry with Aaron. Now he goes and gets specific, not only with you, but with Aaron, because Aaron made this. He goes and he's angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy Aaron. And so I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And then I took, look how he deals with this calf. I took this sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and I burned it with fire. I crushed it, grinding it very small until it was a fine dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down the mountain. He dealt with that idol decisively. I burned it. I melted it down. Then I grinded it up. Then I took the dust and I threw it in the brook and that brook took it away from you. Listen, if you've got an idol, and now I'm talking about something physical, if you've got an image in your house, picture that you call art, 
a gift that someone has given you. It could be a charm or a necklace or a ring or something that has an image on there that is representative of another religion, another God, something that, that was given to you and you know that it's represented of some other religion. You are hurting yourself by keeping it. You should deal with that decisively. And I don't mean go pawn it off for someone else to take that into their life. You should burn that thing if it's metal. You should destroy it, take a hammer to it. You should not go and make it someone else's problem. Because do not take lightly bringing idols into your life, into your home. Perhaps some of the sickness, if you have that in your home, could be because of that. And that's right on the New Testament too. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So, Paul, uh, uh, Moses deals with it decisively, and he takes it, and it, and it gets taken away from him. We keep going. We're going we're gonna to look at three cities. I'm just going to summarize them for you. If you have the reading plan, each of these references are there. He reminds them of how rebellious they are, how they've, how they've worshipped other gods. He talks about a time at a Tabera where there was a group of people on the outskirts of the people. There's a group known as the rabble. The rabble. These are people that came out of Egypt with them. They were not Jewish people. They were Egyptians, but they came out with the people, kind of tagging along. And they're out on the outskirts of the people, and they're, they're complaining. And so in this story here, uh, I want to say maybe Numbers 11, somewhere around there. But in that story there, um, you start to see the consuming fire of the Lord literally start to take people out on the outskirts of the, of the people, of the camp, until Moses goes and intercedes for them. At Massah, this is where Moses is instructed because the people are grumbling about no water and God says, take your staff and hit the rock and out of this flint rock comes water out in the middle of the desert. But they tested the Lord there. At um, Kibroth Hatavah, I think, I don't know how to say that, but, but um, that's in Numbers also, I want to say maybe Numbers 11 also. But this is, the, this is the, the case where people were going, hey, we had meat. We had meat when we were in Egypt. Right now, we're eating this bread, whatever it is, manna from heaven, but we had meat in Egypt. They were longing for meat, so God changes the direction of the wind, sweeps in all this quail. They have so much quail, they can't even handle it. While these people, the people who complained, while they're eating the quail, the Lord starts to strike them dead with plagues. It's there, it's there. And Kadesh Barnea, that's where the spies came back. 12 spies, 10 of them gave a negative report at Kadesh Barnea. And that's where the people could have gone into the land for the first time. But 40 years later, here they are. So Moses reminds them of all these things. So then he says, I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Moses is recounting again how he interceded. Here's how he prayed. I prayed that the Lord, and I prayed this, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death. So he's concerned about God's name and reputation. Verse 29, for they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people who have sinned and rebelled against their God. The danger in the people of God forgetting God is misplacing the glory of God, either in self-righteousness, myself, or in idols, something else that's created and making that into a God, elevating it into the spot of God. 
by the way, I, this morning as I was thinking through, praying through, looking over, you know, it all kind of goes together. Um, this verses, Romans chapter 1 came to mind, verses 18 through 32, where it's kind of a New Testament example of where Paul says people who knew God failed to acknowledge God and they didn't give him glory as God. And so then God gives them over to the depravity of their minds, right? Well, in the midst of that, you've got people who know God but fail to acknowledge God. And later on in the verses, you see them exalting themselves to be idols. It's, uh-huh. it's the sin of homosexuality. Right. At the root of that is idolatry. And so you've got this, these people who are going after themselves and they're so prideful that they're taking knowledge of God and they're setting it aside and they're suppressing it. So you've got a New Testament example of misplacing the glory of God right there in Romans chapter one. What happens when you take the glory of God and you put it on yourself? It leads to idolatry. Now, Moses was interceding for the people and God listened. There is a very intentional correlation. Moses was the mediator of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Old Covenant because there's a new and better covenant, right? Where God says, there's gonna be a day where I'm gonna pour my spirit out and the spirit's gonna come upon you and the law's gonna be written on your heart and you're gonna love God and you're gonna obey God. Well, the mediator of that new and better covenant is a better prophet, a better priest, and a better king. He's a better prophet, a truer and right prophet, better than Moses, He's a, he's a better priest, better than Aaron, and he's a better king, better than David, right? He's the one that all of those pointed to. He's also the mediator of the new covenant and the one who intercedes on behalf of the people who come under that covenant. Look at it. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The goal is not to sin. That's what John says. But if anyone does sin, so the goal is not to sin, but if you do sin, he he knows it's gonna happen, but the goal is not to sin. I want you to know these things so you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. That word means the one who satisfies the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You have an advocate with the Father. So believer in Christ, your new covenant believer, You, the goal is that you don't sin. You learn to know God. You learn to know his ways so that you can walk and live in his ways. That's the goal. But you're going to sin. When you sin, the accuser's going to come along and say, see, therefore, you're not deserving. Well, you know what? He's right. You were never deserving. I was never deserving of of what God gave me. That's why it's called grace. But he's going to get that in your uh, your ear and he's going to start to accuse you that you're you're not deserving and then you're going to start to think it is about my performance. It is about my righteousness. And when I turn my attention to my own righteousness, I will fall short every time. And so the accuser gets that in my ear as a child of God and I start to think, well, it is about my righteousness. And so therefore I start to walk away from God because after all, I'm not righteous enough. And then I start to live my life however I want because why does it matter? If I'm not righteous, then why do I? But he says, you have an advocate with the Father. Christ Jesus, the righteous one, the one whose righteousness you have, he's standing at the right hand of God the Father where he's speaking on your behalf to him. No, he's mine. No, she's mine. Father, no, she's mine too. No, he's mine too. Yes, Father, even that one, that that one's mine too. He's advocating for you. No, my blood covers him and her. Look at Romans 8, Paul. Who is there to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he's the one who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us. So the question is, who can bring a charge against God's elect? And Paul says, nobody. Because, because nobody can condemn because it's Jesus the one, is the one who's died. It's Jesus who's the one who's raised from the dead. It's him who's justifying us. He's declaring us right. And it's him who's at the right hand of God. And he's interceding for us. Like Moses was on his face interceding for the, the people. Jesus doesn't have to be on his face. He's standing right before the Father. He says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interceding for them right now. I'm praying, Peter, stay awake so that you, and pray so that you don't fall into temptation while I go off and pray. He's interceding for us and so that we can live in righteous obedience to him. He's interceding for us so that we can do the things that we can't do apart from the spirit of God enabling us. And then in Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25, consequently he, talking about Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Look at the exclusivity. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He does not save everyone. We're not talking universalism here. Universalism is not biblical. And if universalism is true, God is not love. There's no love when you're not saved from wrath. He is able to draw near, uh, save those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For who? For those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is the mediator of the new and better covenant. He is the one who is interceding on our behalf. Child of God, you have no excuse. I have no excuse to say that I can't do something. No, you've got the very one whose righteousness has been put in your account, the very one who overcame death and sin on your behalf, who gives you that new type of life, makes you new, took you from the domain of darkness and put you into the kingdom of the beloved son. You've got that very one who has now given you his spirit to live inside of you, and he's now living and interceding for you. You have no excuse. I have no excuse. I can't, but God, help me too. God, take from me which, that which I, which I have here that's not of you and instead fill me with the fruit of your spirit. Amen. Right? Like, God, I can't. If I start to think that living this Christian life is based on my righteousness, then I'm misplacing the glory of God. But as Philippians 2, 13 and 14 say, the first part of that is, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? He doesn't mean earn it. He's saying, if you're saved, live it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The second part of that in verse 14, because it is God who both wills and works, or other translations, it is God who both gives you the desire to obey and gives you the ability to carry out that obedience. As a believer in Christ, no part of my life is based on my self-righteousness. I am standing before God because of the righteousness given to me, imputed to me, placed in my account by Jesus, his righteousness. And then I live my life in faithful obedience to God by the power of the spirit of God that's in me. That's how I do that. And so I ask God, help me to do it. And the danger of the people of God forgetting God is misplaced glory. And man, we don't want to be on the side of touching God's glory. So Holy Spirit, come behind me now and take your word and apply it to our lives and give us understanding of that which is beyond our understanding. If there's things I've said, God, that's not true, block our ears from it and take the things that, that are true to who you are in your word and let them pierce through all the noise. And God, where we are placing your glory on ourselves, on other things that we have made idols. Come, Lord, and 
and, and bring, bring uh, awareness, guide us into truth, correct us, reprove us, rebuke us, all of that, that we might then be trained in living righteously. Come and be merciful with us and be kind. And, and we're grateful that your wrath has all been placed on Christ. And so I'm reminded of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, if I've misplaced your glory, then I come before you and I confess it. And if you're aware of a specific example, then just confess that specific example. Call it sin. I've misplaced your glory here. And then know that the God who sent his son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins and raised from the dead has covered that sin. And now you walk in the forgiveness that was already purchased for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to perform your way back into God's good graces. You don't have to, to, to live with the guilt of that sin until you feel better about it. That is not something that we carry. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That includes the guilt that comes with your sin. You don't get to carry the guilt of your sin and give your sin to God and keep the guilt. Christ died for both. So you walk in the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. So come, Holy Spirit, come and have your way among us. Teach us to love you. Teach us to know you. Teach us to live differently because of that. All in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. See you guys next week.